Man, this is such a pleasure. I got one of the uh, all-time greats, Ralph Sampson, University of Virginia. My former teammate played with the Houston Rockets. Man, how are you? First of all, how are you doing physically? What's going on in your life? If I follow you, all-time great. I, I, I'm, I'm second. So you, you know, you with Boston and that dirty jump hook you got is all good. But we'll talk about that later. But no, everything is good here. Everything is, uh, you know how they just, you know how we keeping it safe with family and my mom and dad, 84 and 82, and just kind of keep them in the house. But uh, they active as all get out. But then we just been in the in house in the office, just chilling, man, just trying to figure this stuff out. The big girls love that. Chicks love the last shot opportunity. Somebody give me a napkin so I can wipe my mouth. Ah. Man, you seem just like me when you talk about your family because my father is 94 and my mother's 86. And I'm trying to keep them in, and it's just almost impossible. Oh, that's, that's you go from being like an adult, you, they go from being adults to almost being like your kids. You're trying to rail them in. Oh, they say kids twice and adults once. So, I mean, they, 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 they hit it. My mom is so active, and she gets so moody sometimes. We won't let her out, and then she'll get the car, and she'll just ride around somewhere. My dad will take his truck, and he end up like a 7-Eleven somewhere. Like, dude, you can't go down there. And he had lung, lung issues and prostate issues. I mean, this thing will take you out. He said, what, what do you mean? I said, okay, you don't want to die. And he's like, no, 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 I'm good. So you got, you got to shake him up a little bit, but I, hey, it's, it's tough, man. You know how it is. One thing that I look at you being in the Virginia area and the Black Lives Matter and Charlottesville, I mean, this is right in your back door. I mean, how did this, how did all this stuff make you feel? Well, I mean, you know, here you see, uh, you know, before that uh, thing in Charlotte happened, you could see Confederate flags on the back of people's trucks with their shotguns in the back. I mean, that's just Virginia in the backwoods, right? And then uh, it happened in Charlottesville, you just see it with uh, all the stuff that happened there was kind of crazy. And you just got to be careful these days in this country because something can pop off at any minute. So I think people were trying to gear up for, you know, all the stuff that's happening this year, uh, a couple of years ago. And then, you know, just as, as it goes, and, and, and downtown Charlottesville, closer to North Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, it, be, it just exploded everything that is now Black Lives Matter, you know, that we see now. So not surprising to me, but you definitely got to watch what you do. Stepping back, going into your career as a, a basketball player, I, I, I look at little dots in there. One, Ralph Sampson against Patrick Ewing. That was like one of the. That was like one. Do you remember that? Do you do you remember that game? I do. I do. I actually remember more about the before and after of the game because uh, before that we played Carolina, Duke. We played all the big boys with no one in the country, and then we we're gonna play Patrick. And that was like a week long event of, of, of Sports Illustrated covers to to everything, and then. The game is from Charlottesville to Washington, D.C., the Cap Center at that time, right? So, you know, it's a snowstorm, you know, a a blizzard. So it's a two-hour drive. It took us five hours to get there the night before the game. So we're like, man, we don't have to go get there. We might not get there, et cetera. So we get there. It's cold. It's snowy. Uh, The game was, you know, obviously hyped up, you know, all over the place. And I didn't know all the particulars that I know now about that game. Like Russ Potts, the senator, was involved in putting that game together. Then I didn't know the magnitude of the money that the school got at that point in time, right? Because you just go play. 
And so now we're older, we know that type of stuff, what happened. Then we play, we went, then we go into Japan the next morning. Wow. So it was a wild wind, wild wind trip. We go to Japan, uh, we go through Alaska, to Japan. We plan not only uh, Houston, Akeem Olajuwon, our boy Rodney McRae in Louisville again. We plan all them over there in that sequence. So within a two or three week period of time, we play everybody was top 10 in the country. And then, as you may recall, that's when we go to Hawaii and we just get a little blip in the schedule. And we play Chaminade and get Chaminade. beat. Like eight, eight people, th- five players, and three refs that were cheating. So you know how that goes. But it was a whirlwind of a trip. And the game against Patrick was one of my favorite games I've ever played in college. I, I remember that so well of just, uh, you know, your life has been so storied. And now to be on the, I guess, a little bit on the quiet side now. How have you dealt with that? Because, you know, you were, you know, this is Ralph Sampson. And, you know, you publicly, you know, it's, it's different now. Can you imagine the media hype that would have been following you now compared to when you were playing during that time? Well, I mean, you know, all that social media stuff. I mean, come on, we, we wouldn't have been on the phone and texting and tweet. We didn't want anybody to know what we were doing back in that day, right? We didn't, whatever it be. We didn't want to be out in the public like that. But, I mean... Sports Illustrated covers were big back then, so that was a piece that if you want Sports Illustrated, that was either the greatest thing ever or it could you know, kind of stop some people. Hurt, yeah. Hurt, hurt, whatever. So that was then, and then we didn't have ESPN like we, like we did today. ESPN had just started. The Biggies had just started. So I look at some of those things as even guys before we played, how they evolved into the uh, the platform, the Juliuses, the Creams, uh, the Oscars, the Elgin Bellers, all that kind of stuff. Wilts, you know, back then they didn't have it either. If Wilton would have played, Karina would have played in this era, I mean, it would have been crazy, all the hype they 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 had, right? So it just has evolved. And then, as you know, the money has been, like, stupid. So, you know, we would love to go back and play, you know, at least <laughs> one year of these contracts, because that one year was our whole freaking career almost. But, you know, but, you know it, it's fun to watch the evolution of the NBA. But, you know, me, I, I would love to play right now because, some for the two threes, you know, Bill Fish wouldn't let us do three. You know, we play, you got to get the hole, you got to do this, you got to pass it back out. But uh, the game has evolved, and uh, it's interesting to see how it evolved and see how we can reflect back on it. But I also do think another piece of that is the young guys that play today, you know, I see some of them sometimes, they, they might not know who we are, uh, they might know we talk, we play, but they need to appreciate the guys like yourself, myself. I was talking to Spencer Haywood the other day. I mean, he, he started this one and done stuff and, you know, the, the history, whatever. So understand and respect the past like they should. And then I think, you know, the NBA is doing a good job with that, but we'll see what happens. Your life, and we'll, we'll go forward, fast forward a little bit, going to your life with the Houston Rockets, number one pick in the draft, going to Houston. And I played with you, but the thing everybody didn't talk about is you playing the first Twin Towers. You and you and Elijah one was – that was supposed to be the, 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 the hype of hype. And playing with you guys, I understood. And everybody said maybe you did not have a good relationship with Ralph, but I knew you did. I mean, you with Akeem, that you had a great relationship. Talk about that relationship. Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, I played uh, my first year, I played with Elvin Hayes, Caldwell Jones, Major Jones, Allen Level, Tommy Henderson, and Calvin Murphy. That was my first, you know, so I was uh, introduced to the league by those guys early on, old season vets, right? Like they do this, do that. So they taught me the game really well from the NBA perspective. 
And then the next year, you know, they, they someone retire and leave, and Bill Fitch, you know, got rid of some of them as well. But um, Caldwell Jones took me under his wing a little bit, and 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 Elvin Hayes and told me kind of what the lay of the land was. So I learned a lot there. And then when the season was over, we still had the number one pick, and um, they sent me down and said, "Okay, how would you want to play with Akeem Olajuwon? How would that work? Would you want to move the the, the, the power forward, small forward, etc.?" I said, "Sure, that, that fits my game. I think we would get along. We played in college against each other." And so we knew that had that relationship a little bit, but I'd seen him around Houston a little bit and I thought it would be a great fit. So we met and then the relationship was built at that point in time. Now, Bill Fitch, you know, we, I mean, we wanted to play against each other in practice. He wouldn't let us do that that much. He wanted to build that camaraderie between he and I. So we had a unique ability to look at each other and shake our head. Okay, great. Especially like against Kareem. We all, I mean, uh, uh, came want to play against Kareem all the time. I'll guard him, I'll guard him, but you come across and block his shot. I said, dude, you can't block this guy hook. That's impossible to block. Nobody's ever done it. But uh, we did it a few times, but it was a good fit. And even after I got traded, we talked a little bit. He said, man, we wish we just played a little bit longer because we were right on that cusp to do something special, but we never had a true point guard. Uh, you know, in all those point guard years that, that we had, we, we we started to point forward with Ryder McRae and, 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 and Robert Reed and yourself, you know, you bring the ball down. So uh, we wish we'd have played longer together, but obviously we didn't do that. But uh, we have a good relationship for sure. Now, did you say Tom Henderson? Is that who you said? Yes. I have a great story about Tom Henderson, and, and I'll share it with you. I've, I've shared it with some of our listeners before. Uh, back during the 80s, we were, I guess, you know, teams would stay over. And, and not come. You weren't in the league yet. So I lived out in Framingham, maybe about 25 miles outside the city. We just played the Rockets. And I didn't know anybody in my a car, apartment complex. So it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. We would beat Houston. I was back in the room. I was asleep. I get a call. I get a knock on my door at 2 in the morning. Yeah. I was like, who is this? <laughs> it's like, I said, who is it? Tom. I was like, who? Tom Henderson, the Houston Rockets. I was like, oh, wow. what? I opened the door. I see him. He's there with another black guy who lived in my apartment complex. I didn't really know him. And they say, uh, you have any, uh, you have any, any ammonia? <laughs> oh, like, ammonia? Eh? You got no damn ammonia? It's, it's two in the morning. <laughs> so, what, what? They say, well, you got any baking powder? I'm like, damn, they cooking and they cleaning. I had no idea what was going on. I get back to, I, I go back to sleep. I wake up the next day. I see my teammates. I said, man, Tom Henson came by my apartment at two in the morning. He wanted some bacon powder and some ammonia. He said, you idiot, that was smoking crack. <laughs> <laughs> and even today, I just, I oh, just Lord. laugh because during that particular time, as you know, drugs. Yeah, I remember you didn't do it. I didn't do it. But a yep. lot of people in the NBA, when you first got in, that was almost norm, wasn't it? Well, I think it was norm. I mean, my first experience with that in the NBA. Now, now I'll go back. My mother and father took me uh, obviously on the wing, and they showed me how to cut in a play that was really good at basketball. They ended up killing himself many, many years ago, uh, but with on drugs. And they took me – it's from from actually from Harrisburg, Virginia to Boston because he, wow. he moved from Harrisburg to Boston and he was a, a pimp drug dealer and, uh, you know, he did whatever he needed to do with that. But I saw him in jail. Wow. You know, you could see, only see his face through a little window like this. And I, this is the dude I learned basketball from. We slept in the same bed sometimes because he stayed at our house, et cetera, et cetera. So I understood it from that point in time. So I knew from that, that seeing that I didn't want to go that route. 
And then my first year in the league, I had some of my lovely teammates come over to my my, my, my townhouse there, and I've, I remember it like it was yesterday. They came over and hung out, and they put this bag of white powder on the table. I'm like, what the fuck is that? You know, <laughs> what, is, what is this? Whatever. So they did it. I'm like, okay, great. They said, well, you want to do a line? I said, no, no, no. So I had a license to carry when I went to Houston. So I went downstairs. I had a 357. Someone gave it Magnum. I, I got it. I said, put it, I put it on the desk. Uh, I took it out, and I put it on the table where they laid the cocaine at. I said, dude, if y'all ever bring that around me again, it's going to be not a pretty sight. They left wow. right there because I need to make that statement that I don't do that. So it was prevalent there, obviously, uh, in a lot of ways, especially, I mean, every, everybody always said Oakland was a pit. You go to Oakland you know, or whatever, you could go there and you might not come back. So I've seen some experience with some other players there, but uh, it, w- it was there. You, you saw it, you understood it. But I tell people the biggest thing that I've started surprising, Carvel Jones, Actually, again, these older guys taught me this type of stuff as well. But, you know, Caldwell Jones would drink a six-pack right after the game, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd, yeah. It'd be beside your locker, right? It'd be right there beside your locker. And he'd be like, uh, Dark Horse was the manager, as you remember. He'd be like, oh, Dark, make sure my six-pack is right there beside my locker. Make sure it's cold after I get it. I mean, he, he drank that before he took a shower, the whole six-pack. So, you know, they don't have that now in the league. But uh, some things happened back then that was crazy. And, and drugs was one of those things that you saw. But you didn't want to, you know, you choose to not do it or not do it. And we actually chose not to, obviously. Well, take us through. I'm going to take you back even a little bit. And one of the great shots that we see in NBA history was the Ralph Sampson shot against the Lakers, where, you know, you you knock them out of the playoffs. Ball comes into you from the side. How many seconds were on the clock? Like none? And you just... And like uh, like nine-tenths, like less than either one-point-something or nine-tenths. I forget what it was, but... Uh, our boy Rod McCray said it wasn't a shot with his pass because he inbounded the pass from out of bounds. But uh, I tell people all the time, I mean, it was a great shot, obviously, in my career. But uh, you know, we had played Denver in a grueling seven-game series with Alex Lingus, Kiki, and all that crew, right? And uh, seven games. And, and, and the seventh game was at their place. I had – Kakeem had fouled out. I had fouled out. Granville Waiters, Craig Elo, Rodney, Robert Reed, the crew – won that game for us down the stretch to go to go to go to LA. So that nobody remembers that game to some extent. We get to LA two days later and they they roasted us. They just opened the door, magic the boys were throwing, you know how they fly around, throwing lobs. Okay, great. And they thought they were gonna win. So we regrouped. We had a meeting uh the next day and we go said, man, you know, we were tired. You know, you know how it is with the playoffs going in that situation. You're tired, you're frustrated, you try to get it done. And then we we won the next game. We won the next game. You know, we go to Houston, win our games there. We're going back to L.A. And then we win that game on that shot. And we talked to Maddie these days. I said, look, Maddie, you know, you you won the first game, but we're going to beat you anyway. So if I'd have not made that shot, we're going back to Houston. And we're going to kick your tail when you go to Houston anyway. You already know that. So he said, yeah, you're probably right. But he always just said, well, you motivated us because the next two years we won back-to-back. I said, okay, you, you got back-to-back, so it's good. So it was a good shot, a uh, good time in the career. You know, you know how it is. You went in L.A., you, you can, you know, you, you know the rivalry. You've been at yeah. Boston Lakers. You went on either one of those courts. It's, it's pretty special. I, uh, I guess now this is the part where I'm going to apologize to you for something which most fans don't even know about. Uh, just a, a blip on the radar in Boston when you played against the Celtics during that championship, I think in 1986, uh-huh. uh, 
Ralph Sampson had had an incident with Jerry Seastings where he gave him a, a, a right cross, I guess <laughs> it was a right cross. And Ralph came back to Boston. Uh, Houston came into Boston. And in the rafters, there's a, I guess it was like a, a mannequin with your jersey on, your number, your name, hanging from the rafters. I have to apologize. And, and I wasn't even there, but just a, a bad spot in Boston history that people don't even talk about. Can you talk about a little bit about it and how it affected you? Well, the, uh, I mean, to go back to the incident in, in Houston, <clears throat> I mean, you know, they were up. Uh, it was kind of a close-up game. I said, if you're going to win this thing in my mind, you're going to win it on your spot. You're not going to win it on home court because that's just my metallic game. So the first, first quarter I had – First eight, no, I meant that like fifteen points, eight rebounds, and I was, you know, rolling a little bit, and um, uh, you know, as they would come around, you know how the guard you sit a pick down, and your your, your shooting guard come out, whatever. So I sit a pick down, and Danny Ainge come out running around the pick. He hit me in the nuts. You know, I sit a pick down, come back around. Jerry Sixteen did the same thing. You know, and God bless you. So DJ, favorite guy, you know, with the play. I mean, they run around. They were just some, you know, guys that would do that to irritate because I was, you know, then I had Bill Walton guard me. I was like, come on, Bill, you can't guard me. Just, just, just sit, sit your ass down. So that kept happening, and and I was so hyped up. And it happened down the court, and then one time it happened, I just got frustrated, and then we went to blows, right, and went with the swing. So I, I look up. My two freaking sisters are on the end of the court, you know, come, come out the stands and everybody just went. Then they obviously kicked me out of the game and then we don't win that game going back to Boston. So I leave that game and then all of a sudden there was this all this hate letters and calls and whatever it be. So the team said, basically, you know, we got out, so we got to have security around you. So I called my two weight coaches at Virginia because they were like John Gamble, weight coach, he's at Buffalo right now, but he was like, protecting he was 300 pounds bodybuilder weightlifter and, and his partner so we had security around me so I was on the floor in Boston so I knew that we had to do something but they were on one end of the floor and on one run and, and the other one on one side for my room so if anything went down I was right beside those security people and I didn't pay much attention to it that I was trying to play and come back and win but I knew going in there there was something special about me playing in Boston at that point in time because I had this security around me so we get to the game, obviously, and the thing that you're talking about that, you know, resonates as well because we get in the game and you know how the garden was. It just hyped up and you're ready to play. You know, we're trying to get there before the game, before Larry gets the game because he will always try to be the first one on the court. And Rod Reed, we try to beat him on court just to frustrate him. So we, we did a little bit of that. But you're right. There was a, a, a mannequin or stuffed animal or stuffed, stuffed human figure, right, with socks and jerseys and 50 and they had an afro wig on it whatever and then they had number 50 on it had Samson back and they had a noose hanging up over the rail of the boston garden like they were gonna hang me when i got there so i understand that you know at that point i looked up okay great but it only motivated me to play harder number one number two after the game like okay uh, we play and we know they're going to win right so bill fitz knows that crowd which he got us off the court, which was the smartest thing to do now that I look back even after, after I talked to him and said, I got you off the court because something was going to happen. Uh, and so we, he put the, 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 the starters in the locker room. We got us off the court with security. And our, our, our substitutes played the last three or four minutes, four, three minutes of the game, right? So, uh, you know, thank him for that at that point in time. But we had a conversation about that. Uh, as well but you know it was something you look at and now you look at it again and see the magnitude of it it's kind of crazy right that you have to 
go in an arena and play and, 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 and they allow that to happen in the arena. I don't think they would do that today. If somebody did today, probably security would take them out. But, you know, it's nature of the beast in, 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 in Boston. You understand their passion, though, for their team. But then you do something against their team, then some people might do that. So uh, and when you, as you look at it, and I apologize for you, which you don't have to, but it motivated me to play, play harder. And then as I look back at the time today, it's like, what's the significance of that? And how can we change people's attitude, you know, especially in the world we live today with Black Lives Matter, things that happen in Charlottesville, things we see every day. Now you see the difference, even in the election and the votes of people out here that, you know, got a misconception of what life's about to me. Yeah. And yeah. we all people, we also love each other. We also respect each other, but it's not a white or black matter. It's just a life matter. And then people get it all mixed up when we got a long way to go to get this thing corrected for sure. I, I, I look back at that and it's so shocking. And I remember it was actually a Celtic official that went up to the top and actually took it down. Okay. What was even more shocking about it to me was not only was it there, but when they took it down, they were taking it down. People started booing the guy <laughs> who took it down. I was like, this was like this is like a no-brainer. I mean, I understand that times are different. We're talking 30 plus years, but that was it. it People don't talk about that. A lot of people won't remember it. You might want to go, as my broadcast partner said, go back and Google it, fans, because you would be like, that happened during our lifetime. Yeah, and that yeah. to me was absolutely, like, unbelievable. This episode of the Cedric Maxwell Podcast is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. The wait is finally over. Football is back. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any other place online. You can get in on the action right now. The season opening bonuses is the best way to start you off. Wagering on win, division, and championship futures today. Head to BetOnline.ag and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. That's BetOnline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Now, I'm going to move on because I, it, it just it pisses me <laughs> off when I think about it. Um, never enjoyed playing in, as much in a city as I did when I finally got to Houston with you and playing with Elijah Wan. Man, it, the, the city of Houston is a special place. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, man. It's, uh, I mean, you know, even now when I go back, uh, I feel like I'm home. You know, I know Harrison was my home, my mom and dad and the family or whatever. I can go there. It's like, I don't want to leave, wow. you know, because it, it just a, it's a big city, um, you know, and it's gotten bigger and bigger. But just the people, the fans, the the restaurants, just the lifestyle for me is pretty cool. I mean, I wish, I mean, I always look back. I was there in January before the stuff broke out with my son. He was living there at the point in time. I said, man, I mean, don't you, here's where we live, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it's a special place. It's, you know, NBA loves the city. They love the sports arenas. The fans are crazy, which is great. But you're welcome in that city. Even today when I go, oh, you, they remember you. Uh, you know, so if you're just there, you can just kind of just fade into the city. But also you can be known in the city as well if you want to because it's so freaking big. Yeah. When I first got to Houston, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I flew from, from New York, and it was crazy. I was on one Learjet. 
at the number one pick. Riley McRae was on the other Learjet. We were side by side flying to Houston, wow. going to Houston to the summit to be introduced to the to, to the fans, right? We get there, 18,000 people in the arena. Uh, just just crazy. So we get that. And it's a funny story. We get there, and me and Rodney, like, stand in the summit area in the, in the hotel there. And like, we look at, like, okay, we got to sign a contract, but let's go out tonight. So, you know, we're going to celebrate. So we go out to a local restaurant, a local bar, and the first person we see is Alan Level. We, we didn't know who he was. We didn't know who he was. So we get there, we go, we eat, we hang out, we go to the bar area. So, you know, Caldwell, all the guys there. We see Alan Level smoking cigarettes. We're like, me and Roddy are like, what the hell we didn't got ourselves into? We're like, well, we, we come in here, you know, our point guard, and Alan says, you come there, I'm the man, I'm the man in Houston, so anything you need, I'm the man. We're like, okay, great. We see him in the corner smoking cigarettes. We look at him like, what the hell? We got a point guard smoking cigarettes. And it was like June. So, you know, so we go back and even talk to Alan about that today. But it was a fun city. Um, I mean, it's a special place, obviously, being drafted there, number one. But And I go back today and say, you know, I, I would love to live there again. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about getting a condo or something like that. It might not be a house because I got to go back and forth with my parents in Virginia. But it's a, as you know, it's a special place. I, uh, I'll ask you kind of a different question, take you a different way. And I always ask people this question. Ralph Sampson, give me your Mount Rushmore of sports. And it doesn't have to be all five basketball players, <laughs> but give me your what would be your Mount Rushmore of sports. How many picks I get? How many people you know, I get? Mount Rushmore only has four. I, I, that's what I'm saying. I got to make it five. So you can't have five. There's only one Mount Rushmore. I have a point guard, so Rushmore would be. Um, you don't have to do it with basketball. He can no, I get it. So, 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 so my number one, Muhammad Ali. Okay. Uh, just the uh, mere fact of all the stuff he went through, and I, I got to know him a little bit better. He lived in Phoenix when I was coaching there, uh, but over the years, and I would go to Louisville. But number one, Muhammad Ali would be probably my number one that needs to be on Mount Rushmore from that standpoint. And I think he's a very, very special guy. Uh, in, in the world of just sports and humanity, so forth and so on. Um, you know, I would then go, you know, from away from the sports world. And, you know, Barack Obama, you know, would be somebody I'll put up there uh, just because of the first ever African-American to be the president. But I think you I think we'll see as this continues to go on how much he is worth in this world. Uh, so I got to meet him a couple of times here and there, but I think he's very special as well. And if I go back to... A, a basketball player I always enjoyed Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, I got to know him okay. as well. And, and, you know, it's, it's a funny story. So I would see Will in LA go play. He hated Kareem. I mean, he just literally hated Kareem with a passion. He would say, big fella, I want you to, you know, F him up a little bit. Like, okay. So, and then, then you would see him, you know, down at Gladstones and, and on the beach playing volleyball, you know, like a high jump seven foot, but he'd be at Gladstones in his convertible Rolls Royce with a, with a bikini bathing suit on. I mean, you know, it's 300 pounds, seven foot two. Yeah. Just crazy guy. And then I would go over to the Coliseum. You go to football games or you go to track meets, whatever. You look up in the Coliseum and the first time I met him, he'd be up in the top of the Coliseum sunbathing. So just to understand his mentality and able to conversate with him at that level, understand his ability, his mindset for me was very going into the league. Because, you know, he was one of the baddest boys out there, right? He scored 50 points, get 20 rebounds, had 50, 50 rebound games, and was very dominant and very athletic. So I tell people today, is it, would you take Shaquille O'Neal or would you take Will Chamberlain? Wow. 
Now, you know, that's the debate right there that you had statistically. I mean, I love Shaquille for what he can do in the game, but what was the first, first big dominant yeah, big man yeah. of that stature, right? So anyway, I would put what up there as well. And then, you know, just from a lifestyle standpoint, you would just take those three picks and you can put anybody else that you want. You can put from a Michael to LeBron. You can put anybody up there from that standpoint. Well, it's your your Mount Rushmore. We got, I got my builders ready to go. So we got to have one more person. I'm going to get you one more. I'll get you one. So I I built a relationship and this is all relationship driven with Elgin Baylor. Wow. You know, so, I mean, the first one, the first could do all the stuff with the ball and, and his history, uh, you know, being in, I mean, actually lived in Virginia for a little bit when he was young, born and raised, whatever. But to understand Elgin, uh, you can read his book. Uh, but, you know, I've been to his house, his wife, um, you know, he he, he knew Obama. Uh, you know, he, he's got a little dimension going on right now. So I hope he's safe and sound. But um, Elgin's a special dude. Uh, so for me, he would be one of the first iconic guys that's in that, you know, six foot eight, six foot seven, whatever model of a Michael, LeBron, and that crew, Julius. But Elgin Bell was a bad boy. So he'd be my fourth. You 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 bring up a name that all basketball people want to know about. Your critique right now on LeBron James. You know, I knew LeBron. I had an AAU team uh, when he was coming out in high school. And I had, I wanted to do a regional team and he was one of the people on the team. And, you know, once we got there, we had, we were loaded and I knew, and I mean, I met his mom, I knew his story, et cetera. And we had an all-star AAU team. We got into it for like one month and they made this new rule in the AAU that you couldn't have a player that was not within 100 mile radius of your, of your location. So we never could play. We never go ahead to disband the team. So I watched him over the years, understand that, and see the evolution of LeBron. Uh, I mean, I mean, you, you can't really say who's the best ever if you award in championships, right? So the best ever championship is Bill, Bill yeah. Russell. I mean, and I have a relationship with him. And I, I, who do you think? What well, to me, the greatest ever is Bill because of you equating championships. Uh, the greatest athlete ever is going to be LeBron. Because of, I mean, you you know how rigorous this thing is. Even even today, I mean, Mac, you you can understand. They get food in the arena. They got chefs. They fly on private plane. We could play for another five six years. We had all that. They, you know, I was the first guy in the league to bring weights into a locker room. Wow! In Houston, we had one locker room. Oh, we had the weight room there. Yeah. Caldwell Jones major. I'm like, well, you listen waste for. Her. I mean, you know, that's gonna throw your shot off. I'm like, no, man, I've been listening waste. I had to, you know, build a little bit because I was, you know, soaking wet in 185 pounds. But LeBron's body, mindset, ability to change the game uh, and stay that competitive at, you know, now 18, 17, 18 years in the league is amazing to watch. And I would, I want him to win more championships. I mean, just think 10, 10 finals in a number of years. That's 120 some games plus with, with preseason. Is that body still going like it is? He's probably one of the most ma- amazing athletes of all time, not only in just basketball, maybe in all sports. You've looked at this this year has taken away some of the iconic people, you know, uh, John Thompson. But then the guy I got a chance to meet and talk to in the last years or so was Kobe Bryant. A little bit about Kobe, because where were you when you heard the news? Right. And uh, just like everybody, you're just in shock and can't believe it. It's like, don't tell me that. That can't be true. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, it, certain moments in your life, you will always know where you were when something happened. Mm-hmm. And Kobe is one of them. I was in a Staples uh, office supply store in Newport, News, Virginia, getting some ink for my printer. I mean, know what I was doing. And then I walk in and one of the managers come and said, you hear about Kobe? He died. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? He, he died. He died. I'm like, whatever. You, you bullshit me. So I get it. I go right back uh, home. And I look on the news, and all the news is all over the place. With you know, you look at your phone, all in place with this helicopter. Kobe may have died. What's happening? Then you start hearing stories about who may have been on, on a helicopter. Uh, you know, Nancy Lee was a friend of mine. She was supposed to be there with him going on that helicopter. So all the stories start to come out, and you're like, wow. And then you start to think about it. You know, like helicopter flying. I mean, the tragic, I mean, his daughter in his arms and other people in there with their kid on as well. And like, and you know, you're going to crash. And then what do you do? So every time I think about it, it's just heart wrenching. I understand the passing. I get that. But the tragic way it happened with the daughter and the people on it, it just, it just gets under my skin. It gets emotional, but it's, it's, it's very sad. And then, you're right. This year has been crazy uh, from, Kobe to John Thompson. I remember I was at with John Thompson as well. Me and, me and John had built a relationship over the years. I mean, he recruited me in, co- in college to go to Georgetown. Uh, I remember when he came to my parents' house and sat in my mom's chair in a big John Thompson sitting chair. My mom thought he was going to break the chair because he was so tall and big, whatever. But you remember those incidents. And, you know, John Lewis, it's been a crazy, crazy 2020. And it started with Kobe. Uh, and, you know, if that was any uh, idea what this year was going to be like. It is what it is, right? At this point in time, but very sad, man. I mean, that legacy will last forever. His wife, kids, uh, I, I feel for him for sure. You had to go through one of the most crazy, I guess, recruiting battles of all time when you came out because you're talking about John Thompson. I know Dean Smith had to come get you, wanted to see you. How, you know, how did you make that final pick to go to Virginia instead? Obviously, you're home, but still just all the places that you had. I mean, how many scholarships do you think you offered you think you had? <laughs> that would that'd be the first thing. Well, we well, could you know, count. I had a great high school coach, and he's still living at 80, 80 years old today. And we set up these rules, so Rouse rules. And we didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea what we were doing. But he, he, he researched it. He had an idea. So we would get a letter from a school. He would make sure I got all the letters to all the schools. And I mean, probably three, 4,000 schools out there at that point in time sent letters. Um, and, you know, some of you know you're not going to go to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, what you figured out. And you try to understand it. And then I had a uh, uh, one of my best friends, B.J. Johnson, uh, that played at East State from my hometown two, two doors up passed away in a tragic bike wreck about a month and a half ago in, in Houston at, at that. But I had a tribute show with him on our radio show. And I had coach Sonny Smith that coached um, Barkley and Chuck Person at Jim Hallahan and these type of people on uh, Mac McCarthy on the show, tributing him. And we looked back at it and, they talked about the historical stuff that he did in Houston, but also over, 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 the, over the career time. But anyway, Tony Smith mentioned said, well, B.J. Jonathan took you down to East Tennessee State. Now, I know I wasn't going to go to East Tennessee State, but a friend of mine, he drives me down. Let's go. I'm going to school. Let's drive you down and let's just hang out. Okay, great. Drive me down, hang out. Then, you know, B, I need to work out. I mean, I got to I mean, I, I work out. So, oh, let's go work out. Let's go play. 
So we go, we play, and then the ADs up in the stands watching and say, Coach, who's that kid down there playing? Oh, that's Ralph Sampson, friend of B.J. Johnson. Well, you know it's an NCAA violation. That AD turned his own school in. Oh, my goodness. Turned what? his own school in. I didn't know that story to a reason. Turned his own school in, so they got in trouble for that from that standpoint. So recruiting was crazy. Uh, you know, I, you know, at that point in time, you had six visits. You could take six visits. I only took four. They'd be like, go to UCLA, go to Hawaii. Go. I said, no, I don't want to go that far. I don't want to travel that far. So my four visits were Kentucky, Joe B. Hall, Leonard Hamilton. We, we, if I'd have gone there, we'd have seven high school All-Americans on the team. Myself, Sam Boyd, Dick Minifield, Dick Hord. I mean, we'd have had seven. Um, next was Virginia Tech. They had Tick Price and Wayne Solomon and, Treat, and uh, Wayne Solomon and uh, uh, Mike Robinson. They had, had really good nucleus, Tick Price, but they were all seniors. And they were in the Metro Conference. The only good team was, was Louisville. The Metro Conference, Virginia Tech, was crazy. Go to North Carolina. Visit there. I like North Carolina a lot. I had, Al Wood was my host, right? So Al Wood takes me on campus. And, I was, okay, Al, let's hang out. And then... He said, well, meet me at Carmichael. Okay. So I get on campus. I get an hour and a half late. I'm lost. I don't know where I'm at on campus. I get lost. And these Smiths to this day blame Al Wood for me not going to North Carolina. Because I would have played with, you know, with that crew, with me and, me and James Worthy, and the crew would have been in the same class. I mean, it would have been really good. And then Virginia, uh, you know, it was an hour from my house. And they had a few good players, Jeff Lamp, Lee Raker, those guys that well from Kentucky, but they never could get over the hump. And even today, I realize the significance of going to Virginia. And I'll tell you why. So with hours of my mom and dad's house, it was in the ACC, and mm-hmm. I could get a good education. But Virginia, only if you ever look at only had ever two African-Americans on the team. Wow. And the reason why is that nobody else wanted to room with them on the road. Wow. I didn't know that until over the years, right? Coach, Coach Holland. So they had two. They had Mike Owens, Mike Owens Bobby Stokes. And Garland Jefferson. And Garland never played that much, but Mike and Bobby room. And Garland would stay home sometimes. He would go on the road sometimes, but, you know, he had a couple guys he room with. But we we changed the culture at UVA. We brought in six African-Americans my freshman year. Wow. So it changed the whole dynamic of UVA uh, sports from a basketball perspective. And I didn't realize that till you know, years later that I got out of school there. Not that Coach Holland and the crew was racist, but, you know, no one ever wanted to go there because of the stigma of Virginia the basketball, he tried to he tried to change it up in 1976. They won the ACC title, and then you know two African Americans on that team, Bobby Stokes and Mike Owens, Wally Walker and the crew, whatever. But even today, even today, and I tell you because that whatever I look back at it. One of the reasons I actually now live in Charlottesville is come back is because of the stuff that's racially divided in Charlottesville with the school and also also the, uh, the sports piece. There was something on uh, walking on the lovely Thomas Jefferson lawn a couple weeks ago. And it's in the news that these young ladies uh, are standing up for Black Lives Matter. And they put a, a piece of paper on their dorm room door. Now, this is where Jefferson lived and Edgar Allan Poe and all these big people lived back in the day. But they didn't they didn't deface the university. They just put the, a piece of paper and said F-U-V-A. And it's their racism and all this kind of stuff. So all the university is uh, up in arms, right? Because of that, they like, oh, we need to get this girl to take it down. All the big money people like, President, you need to go get that down, whatever. So they said that, and guess what? Like four or five people did it on the same door as well. So going back and understanding where we were, where we've been, what I've been through there now, and understanding it, it's, it's kind of crazy to watch it and see it. 
uh, evolved. And so the significance of UVA to me right now is even more meaningful that I went there. And now is what I'm going to do to help change the culture there in some respect, especially in Charlottesville with, you know, R.E. Lee. My, my, favorite, my, my, my arch rival school was uh, R.E. Lee High School. So, I mean, now it's Stanton High School because everybody's changed it. They took down the statue of the Riley, whatever. So, I mean, that statue, that statue didn't bother me. It's what the statue meant that may bother me, right? You can leave the statue up all you want. Ain't nothing going to happen to that statue but some pigeon shit and bird shit on it. So, it's all good. And so, you know, they'll make a difference that way. But, you you know, you do things for a reason. You know what I'm talking about. You're in Boston doing what you do. And, 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 there, and you got this great podcast and show. Significant. That is powerful when we look back at it. Now we have these platforms that we didn't have when we played, right, yeah. that we could stand up for. Now we can do this and say what we want, feel what we want, and nobody's going to say, oh, why you say that? Because it's now here. It's real. So Virginia was my best choice for a lot of different reasons. Your, as you talk about that, you could almost write a book about the incidents, not just your life, but the, the recruiting incidents must have been unbelievable. Here I was. I was. I went to UNC Charlotte. I grew my senior year. I grew between my junior year and my senior year. I got cut as a, a soft, as a junior and grew five inches and went to, was in Kinston, North Carolina and went to Charlotte. So I didn't have many moves around me. So when I look at a guy like you with the, the national notoriety and all the things that happened and, you know, I mean, obviously now you think about it, you, would you, Look back on it, would you even come to the NBA if they had the same rule that they have now coming directly into the pros instead of going into uh, going to the college? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think about it often now because of the situation, but, you know, I kind of... Ralph, just money, the money that, and, and, and I don't get pissed off. <laughs> I do, I, I, I do. Congratulate <laughs> when I think about, I but do. when I think about some of these guys making, I, I think about James Harden turning down $50 million a year. I'm just, well, I, I, I'm, you get pissed at your parents because, damn, I shouldn't have been born now. It, this is this is stupid-ass money. It's not like, you know, oh, it's just, okay, like when we played, I remember the thing that Moses Malone, and you loved him to death, but I remember when I was in the league, and it was crazy because Houston came in and gave Moses Malone a million dollars a year, and it was cash. Yeah, yeah, yep. the league went crazy. They're like, oh my, because it was it was funny money back in the league. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I say funny money, they you might your salary might be six hundred thousand dollars, but they were giving you they would defer. There was a call, thing called defer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your yep. money, and they would give it to you later without interest. Yeah, yeah. And yep. so it was absolutely crazy. But to see the money now, the Steph Curry's and these guys of the world, it it just. It doesn't doesn't piss me off, but it's like, damn, I just can't even believe it. Well, think about this. I, I mean, if, if I were to come out today, three-time college player a year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? $500 million. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, so, but obviously, they're but think about this as well. In high, in high school, I could have came out that year, but I was you know, 195 pounds soaking wet. I wasn't ready, right? Uh, you know, and I saw the Moses and Daryl Dawkins you could have, I could have jumped ship at that point in time. We win the NIT my first year in college against Minnesota and Kevin McHale and Randy Brewer and the crew. Wow. Your guy there, Red Arback, came to our parents' house. I have pictures of whatever with a million dollars in a briefcase. Dude, wait a minute. Let me, let, before you go on with that story, let me tell you how good this story was. You talk about this million dollars you, you were getting and Red Arback came there to your house. 
He wanted me to come with him to your house no, <laughs> give me the money. I'm like, I'm not going to that fucker's house giving him no money. You ain't oh, Lord. that much money. So that, no. I was going to get to that part of the story. So that's really oh, wow, wow. That I mean, that, I didn't know that, but that, that and but so you know the story. It's kind of crazy, yeah. right? So yeah, I was. Yeah, we definitely had to write that book. Now we, 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 we were drafting. Out. What draft we were we? Was that when we took Larry, or we have the number? No, one? you took you took you took. They took Kevin McHale. Kevin McHale, and they we they talked to us. Me, they wanted me and Larry to go down to Virginia and tell you to come out that year, so we could take you. And I was oh, wow. like. Really? And you you really want then? So maybe maybe I would have came if you came. I'd have came out. So that, <laughs> we'll blame you. But. but but tell us a little bit about that story because that's interesting. So no, so they came down. He and uh, I think it was Mister Fitzgerald that, that owned the team. I think at that point in time or something like that. And they knock on the door. We have a picture of him going in the door and all the kind of stuff. We had the briefcase, and he said basically, you come play for the mighty Boston Celtics. And open the briefcase. Here's the million dollars. You never get. You never be able to get this again in life if you don't come out to go to school now. Come out and play with us now. Wow. So I was the only in my freshman year, and I was still developed my body with them. I said, "Huh." I mean, I think Chief was there. Robert was probably here already. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I'm like, I'm like, my mom. I said, "My mom, are we? Are you financially we okay?" I mean, a million dollars on a, t- a dining room table. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. great. My my mom said, you know, well, you know, we work this far, and we'll continue to work no matter what. So it's your decision. So I felt I wasn't quite really, my body wasn't really ready for the NBA. So it what it did was motivate me. So between my freshman and sophomore year in UVA, I gained like 18, 19 pounds, and I was you know stronger than I. So I went back to work. So if I can go get that money and support my family, I'm good. So that was the first one. So think about Kevin wouldn't have gone to the Celtics. Yeah. That pick. The next year, I had the chance to come out again, and you know Worthy wouldn't have gone to the Lakers. The next year, Detroit, Isaiah wouldn't have gone to Detroit. So we had known each other from all the high school pickup games and all-star games. And we, James, you coming out? Ralph, you coming out? They're like, are you coming? I said, I don't know I'm coming out now because I waited till the last minute. But it was coin flip. So Lakers Lakers or Indiana. Hell, I don't want to go to Indiana. I'd rather go to Lakers, but there was no guarantee. If I know what I know now, I'd have came on after my second year. Worthy wouldn't have gone to the Lakers. I'd have gone to Lakers because the politics in the, in, in the league, you know, I tell people, how did Patrick Ewing go to New York? Come on. That, I mean, that, that's, that's, not, that's not supposed to be, right? But he goes, New York because it fit the league. So where would I fit the league and at that point in time in the markets that we know? Not saying that it's fixed, but guess what? Come on. Let's be real. I'd have came out then and Worthy wouldn't have gone there. It'd been me and Kareem and it'd been a whole different market playing with Magic. It'd have been great. And I, I played an all-star game with Magic and won the MVP. I said, damn, I wish I'd have gone out. He said, I wish you'd come out too. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's Houston fit. Things happen for a reason. But uh, I had that chance to come out every year. And from 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 a freshman, which I wasn't ready, to Boston with Red Arback, that's a great story, to the Lakers or Indiana or to uh, Detroit and Cleveland or somebody like that. Detroit or Cleveland, I don't want to go there. So let me, let me go back and get this degree and uh, see if I can win a national title at that point in time. That, that was my mindset. I was, on, I was on schedule to graduate. Uh, and then I had a great nucleus of guys around me that I could play with uh, to potentially win a national title. So that's one of the reasons I went back. That There's things about it, and, and, and we're almost through, but there are things about college that I'm like you that I loved. I mean, I, I didn't – because you're a big man on campus, you, and you, you're you a national whatever. Yep. It, it, it was – I guess it was your oyster. It was everything that you would want 
you were able, what I loved about your situation, you were able to dictate and pick and choose what mm-hmm. you wanted to do for your family. And you didn't get the, the sellout or the million dollars that Red Arback bought you and, and, all, and listen to this stuff. But that must have been tough for a young man with, to see a million dollars cash on the table and you're going. It's, it's something you'll never forget. I mean, like, okay, the million, but I mean, I'll do, uh, equate that, but it's something you like, okay, wow. And then I, I wanted to touch it because you know how you put, you put the hundred dollars on the, on the first stack. Maybe it was some fake paper underneath it. I don't know, but like, okay, can I just touch it? Whatever. But I didn't, but yeah, I remember it for the rest of my life. Obviously my parents will remember it as well, but it was something to see. Cause as you know, you said earlier, a million dollars back then was, was huge. You know, compared to whatever, but you look at the evolution of it now. I mean, like I said, Jane Hart, 50 million. So 50, 50 of those briefcases on one table. Ooh. I mean, the magnitude of that. So, where is all that money coming from? So, I, I, I've done some things and trying to actually had a group to purchase a couple of teams, try to get that done as well. And, and it's a funny story. Uh, Minnesota Timberwolves came up, came up, and I tried to put a group together to do that. And the guys I had, the group that went, then came back after me, said, "Well, we want you, we want you to participate." And uh, but we don't want you to be involved in a team as far as in the front office. But we just want you to have an equity percentage and be the minority and come to the games and do this. Whoa! I'm like, dude, come on. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I I think I know the game a little bit. I have a passion for it, but you don't want me to educate these young guys coming in to understand the game and what it's all about. So it's uh, you know, it's still some of that stuff there in this league. So I, I like where I'm at right now to be a position to be able to do that. I think UVA helped me do that at education wise and also historical wise. And all the stuff you're talking about, we're talking about now, is that how we can have an impact on our society, especially our young guys, because hard and them don't know. I mean, they, they, they can't compute $50 million. Yeah. yeah. So I got 50, but I'm paying how much in taxes? And, you know, and I'm paying every state. There's a state tax. I mean, you know how they, we, 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 we got, I'm, I'm, I'm still except, getting letters. Except in Houston. Except in Houston. Except in, in Texas. No state. Well, that, 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 that was a huge deal for me when I went from Houston to Golden State. I'm like, shit. <laughs> uh, taxes in, one, in California was crazy. But they don't understand that at the magnitude of it, you know, with players today. And then understand that, you know, I mean, they make a lot of money. Don't, don't get me wrong. But if they can keep keep all that, it'd be great. I mean, that's why, as you know, some people fall on hard times with, when, in this league after you make that money. And then you mentioned life after basketball. It's, it's a hard hard fall to uh you know to, to normal life as we all know but uh it was fun to watch these guys make that money as well and see it i mean i mean you know what hundreds of millions of dollars for one player i mean you know they they could they, they should reach back and say hey, you know give us a couple hundred thousand you know just for you know paving the way for them you know <laughs> they should pay us for that i i the, the last question i'll ask you is is very much like we had and 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 i talk about it the Different the lifestyle, the different everything you came in like when you start to talk about. I remember of them telling me, "No, don't lift weights. We don't want yep. you stronger." Now you look at the weightlifting, look at the arenas, look at the planes there independently. You, you, you know, we play. I played in the championship game in 1981 in Houston, where I was the Finals MVP. We're flying back. We can't even fly straight back to Boston. We have to fly on uh, on a plane, Delta Airlines, through Atlanta to oh, connect wow. to come back wow. to Boston. Just the difference in how this league is, and it, it just seems like it's just such a different era, a different life than it it was when you and I played. We had the experience. We thought we were making a ton of money, but we looked at it going, 
You might as well be at the circus because they want that but peanuts. Hey, with no shells on them. I mean, you had to, had to, you know, the shell and give it up. But I mean, I mean, you understand what you're saying. So you know, and it was like you, you three games in a row, three nights. You didn't play two nights. I mean, there was no, was no. Um, I got to rest and you know, and I got to take a day off and all that. That was unheard of, right? Work, I mean, workload, workload, workload. I mean, I, I had cuts in my over my eyes one time, and Bill Fitz said, "Oh, we could just put some uh, goggles on you, stitches, cuts, you know, messed up hand and fingers. You you played, no matter what. And now we got workload and can't play. And now we got massages, masseuse, uh, uh, get your nails done, get your feet done. You know, chefs in arenas, private planes that can take you to and from one stop, making hundreds of millions of dollars. I, I tell you, I mean." Can you imagine the team Houston Rockets over for two point two billion dollars? I mean, come on! And, and Les Alexander, I mean, uh, um, Charlie Thomas bought it for eighty five million. Wow. I mean, at, when it was, you know, so the evolution of it, and then Les bought it, and then he's making all that money. But and then we don't get any of that, right? You know, we don't we don't participate in that money. But uh, uh, I think we, I think they owe us. I think they owe us some oh, some, yeah, some payback. Yeah. But you know, it's great. You're such such fun in talking to you because I'm making such a connection, and I keep saying the last one, but this is the last one. <laughs> All right, we can, that, can you believe that the summit is now a church where you used to play? <laughs> that is a that's the last one. I'll let you talk about that with them with I, the Joe Austin, and you know it's like I can't believe that the summit is now where we play basketball is now a church. I went back there. For a long funeral, and it was in the summer. And I walk in, and like, you know, you walk into the arena, and, and you can tell it's where we played, but it's a church. I'm like, come on, all the stuff that happened in that building that's a church. But you go, I can't even find the locker room anymore because all that stuff is different. And, and I'm like, okay, great. And I try to find where the, so they change it up. I'm like, I mean, that wasn't a bad arena, though. I mean, it was a good arena. Yeah, good. I mean, compared, I mean, they have the, had a couple of sky boxes and all that kind of stuff. Well, but it wasn't a bad arena compared to the Toyota Center there. I understand the magnitude of it. But no, I can't believe it, the church. I mean, you know, so, I mean, I guess they repurposed it, but I mean, that's a special place for us because we played there. Yeah. My first NBA games were there, whatever. It's like, why do you make this a church? Why can't you just leave it a basketball arena? Why it got to be a church? But I mean, Joe Osteen has done an amazing job down there as well. So I commend him what he does. I, I met him a couple of times, but uh, it's def- definitely different to go see. Definitely different well, for me. For dude, sure. thank you very much for being on my podcast. It was a, a pleasure. And one day, if you ever need me for to be on your show or anything, just give me a call because it was. Yeah, we'll hook it up. We'll get, this, we'll get out this, there and make it happen. Was, this was fun. This was history. And I even learned that, you know, I was, that you even learned that I was supposed to be there to bring you a million dollars. I think, yeah, you should have came. I would have played with you earlier on. It's been fun. All right, dude, take it easy. All right, man, y'all be good. Appreciate it. All right, bye-bye.